the children are dismissed for children's church. So a couple thoughts with regard to as the kids walk by, I want you to do two things as you see children walk by you. The first of which is, I just want you to smile at them. Just smile at the kids. You know, it is a good thing when adults are just smiling at children as they walk by. So just smile at them, okay? No, 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 I don't want to see any frowns. I don't want to see anybody like, man, how long is this going to go on? I want to hear, I just want to see smiles on people's faces as children. The second thing is this, as they go to their classrooms, would you just silently just throw up a brief prayer for the teachers that will be overseeing them? That our children would be hearing the gospel message and receive it in such a way that we are building children of great courage in the midst of a world that seems out of whack. That our children would not be careful, but that they would be courageous with the gospel, and that they would know and believe and trust in Jesus. Just, just pray that for about 15 seconds for those teachers as they have these little ones. And the rest of us, we can turn over to uh, John chapter 6 right now. John chapter 6, as we work our way through, uh, I'm sorry, John chapter 7, I'm in John chapter 7. I get discombobulated from time to time up here. You put a mic on somebody and everything goes haywire sometimes. So we're in the, in the gospel of John. Let's read the text first. I'm actually going to read John chapter 7 all the way down through verse 31. I probably won't get that far, but I want to reference some things within there. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, and again, after this means that after the feeding of the 5,000, after the walking on water, after he says, you must uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and the disciples have now dispersed. But this after this also is a time of, of you know, if you're following John, this is about a six-month interlude for John. Six months, nothing goes on. He doesn't record this. Certainly there are things going on. You have to look in the other Gospels. But after this, this is just context, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man is learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. 
Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may, be bro- may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do, will he do more signs than this man has done? And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So let me give you a few institutions and a few names. And when I say these names, we should have a reaction to those names, a visceral reaction. These are polarizing figures. But let me just start with an institution. If I were to tell you today, what is your perspective of Texas Christian University? There's some laughter, there's some real pain, some real pain. I I know it. This is like not a service of lament, but it could be. Um, How about this name, Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan? You know, reactions. You know, Christopher Columbus. You know, I grew up when Christopher Columbus was supposed to be a hero. And now I think Christopher Columbus, there's, there's different perspectives, probably more of a pejorative perspective. How about the name Winston Churchill? When you say Winston Churchill, there's this idea that Winston Churchill was this great defender of, of England and Europe. But if you're from India, you have a different perspective of Winston Churchill, depending on where you are. You might be from India, and you might think he's the great oppressor, as opposed to the great liberator of the, of the Germans. Or speaking of Germans, when I say Adolf Hitler, who has a reaction? Like, you can't be neutral with regard to Hitler, right? Like, you have to have a reaction. Or, or Joseph Stalin, who probably actually put to death more people than Hitler or Mao Zedong, or Napoleon Bonaparte. I mean, these are historical figures that are polarizing. And yet, and yet, Jesus Christ is also a polarizing figure. When I say the name Jesus, what do you think of? As a matter of fact, um, Jesus is either loved or hated, but he is never ignored in the New Testament. Never. And what we find in the midst of of this particular section, John chapter 7, is that we find that there's a group of people, many, many groups of people, that are have a, a strong reaction towards Jesus. Because again, Jesus is either loved or hated, but never ignored. And I think it's true today. I mean, there are those of us who who, who have a perspective of Jesus. He is my savior, he is my he is my friend. He is my, both the great you know, prophet, priest, and king that all of the Old Testament was pointing to. And yet there are people who will stake their lives that Jesus was a false Messiah. 
and that they're doing everything they can to undermine his um, influence in the world. And what we find throughout the Gospel of John, um, again, um, let, let me um, just advocate for this. Um, some of you have, um, just out of curiosity, how many of you have watched a video by The Bible Project? Anybody? Bible Project's great. If you haven't watched The Bible Project, just Google, you know, Brave Search, you know, whatever it is, Bible Project, and go there and look up the Gospel of John. And I'm telling you, it is a wonderful way of getting a summary of what John is teaching all the way up. As a matter of fact, one of the things that, as I looked through the video this week, one of the things that I was amazed by is how he puts it all together. And one of the things that happens is every time that Jesus... um, does a miracle. And again, John calls them the signs. You know, there there are seven different signs or miracles, like turning water into wine in chapter two, or or healing a sick boy in chapter four, healing a paralyzed man in chapter five, or feeding the 5,000. And then again, we'll get to the healing of the blind man and the raising of Lazarus in chapter nine and 11. Every time there's a miracle, this sign is pointing to who Jesus is. And and what accompanies that sign is people have to make a decision about what they believe about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And oftentimes there's also these self- um, declared statements, these seven I am statements. And we just went through one, I am the bread of life. And when Jesus says these I am statements, he's further asking people to say, who do you think that I am? Who is it that you believe that I am? And so what he says um, in all the I am statements is he's declaring himself to be the Messiah. He's declaring himself to be what all the Old Testament was foreshadowing would be. The other thing that John does um, in the midst of this is, is Jesus takes the, the, the Jewish feast of, of Passover, as well as booths, as well as Hanukkah, those other um, feasts. And we know that there's time designations within there. And so Jesus uses the feasts that are going on. And we're, right now we're at the Feast of Booths, right? This is the Feast of Booths. And Jesus is going to tell that everything that you celebrate is what I'm about. Everything from the Passover, you know, when we think about um, the Passover that, that will come, there's, there's three great Jewish feasts that occur that all the, the population were meant to go up to Jerusalem. That's why we have in the Psalms, the, song, the Psalms of Ascent, right? From Psalm 120 through, I think it's like 135. Um, they would always sing as they're going up to Jerusalem. And what we find is those um, three different feasts One was, you know, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Passover, and and we've talked about that. Uh, John's talked about that. Uh, Then we have the Feast of Pentecost, and then we have the Feast of Booths. Now, as we think about those three feasts, um, let me uh, give you just a little bit of background on those as we get into them, uh, so that you understand what's going on. You know, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's Passover. You know, we think about that with the resurrection. You know, Jesus, you know, it this feast, it launched the beginning of the harvest year. Its observance anticipated Christ's atoning death on the cross. Um, so this, is, this happens in the spring. You know, this happens, this is when Jesus went up. That's why we celebrate um, the resurrection in the spring. Then we have Pentecost, which is also a great feast, three great feasts, unleavened bread, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. Pentecost, which marked the summer harvest, it happened Pentecost, 50, Pentecost, 50 days after Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what it marked was the summer harvest and was tied in Israel to the giving of God's law to Moses. Again, it happened seven weeks. 
And then we have the Feast of Tabernacles or booze, and this sort of happens in the fall. It, it was the completed harvest and was associated with kingship and enthronement. It thus pointed to the second coming of Christ. It was saying that the harvest has come in, and now we can celebrate. The closest thing that we have today is probably Thanksgiving. The harvest has come in, and so now, after the harvest has come in, and again, you're talking about an agrarian society, and they have worked tirelessly to bring in all of the crops. Now all the crops have come in, they've seen the yield, and they celebrate. And they celebrate with great festal joy. And so this is a, a time, and this is a celebration, and this is probably the most joyful of all um, of the Jewish feasts. Matter of fact, this was probably the pinnacle. It probably wasn't unleavened bread or Pentecost. It was most likely the tabernacle, the Feast of Booths. And so what would happen is, in order to celebrate this, um, everybody would come together, and they're celebrating God's provision and sustaining provision in the wilderness wanderings. And so what they would do, um, and I got to, let me, let me just read this, um, just a quick quote. They call it the Feast of Tabernacles, and they would, the, it was designed to remember the wilderness journey from Egypt to Canaan when God made the people live in booths. During the time of the feast, each Israelite family was supposed to construct a booth or a sukkah and live in it for a week. And these booths were small, temporary shelters with thatched roofs of palm fronds and other plants. And according to one in interpretation of verse 41 of Leviticus 23, they were decorated with different kinds of fruit that grew in Palestine. Later generations obeyed the command to rejoice with fruit and foliage by having men carry an etrog or citron and a lulav in procession and joyful processions. A citron is a citrus fruit native to the Middle East and looks something like a large lemon. And a lulav is a branch or palm with two myrtle branches bound to one side of it and three willow branches to the other. And so these guys are walking around with fruit and with these branches and everybody's going there and it's a big camping trip. It's a big camping trip once a year in the fall. That's why we do the Colorado men's hiking trip in the fall. <laughs> Not at all. There's no correlation whatsoever to that, right? But let me just say, so, so here we go. So the, it's a big, huge camping trip. And I don't mean like RVs or anything like that. Uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you guys like to camp? Yeah, me either. Yeah, me either. Yeah. <laughs> I like things like running water. Uh, electricity, comfort, uh, beds. You know, you know what the best part about camping is? Leaving. <laughs> and you know what it is. You know what it is. Like when you leave, you're like, oh man, I can't wait to get a shower. You know, like I can't wait. Like matter of fact, one of the, I just got to tell you this. So in terms of camping, they're like, hey, Boomer, are you going to go on the camping trip? And I'm like, well, I'm more of like, I kind of want to be in a hotel and do the, do the hiking. And they said, if you go on the men's camping trip, and you stay in a hotel, you will be mocked mercilessly. And I looked at that person and I said, the gospel frees me from all of that. I feel no shame. All I feel is heat and a good shower. So I'm not a camper. I love being outside. I love nature. I love doing this. And again, this is a time where, you know, everybody would come, they're camping, and it's a big, you know, festival procession. And so this is the pinnacle of joy within the Jewish calendar. 
This is a great time of joy. And so what we find is, is that Jesus, um, in the ministry of Jesus, and what he has said is going to be challenged by a whole group of different people. Again, you love him, you hate him, but you cannot ignore him. First group, and this is, man, this, this is challenging right here. First group, after this, he's in Galilee. Uh, he would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. That's probably a good reason not to go, as time had not yet come. So the Feast of Booze is there. Everybody's excited. It's Thanksgiving, right? Everybody's excited about what's going on. It's a big camping trip. It's going to be great. So his brothers said to him. Now, when you think about his brothers, now, Jesus had half-brothers. You know, um, Mary was a virgin when she had Jesus, but she did not stay a virgin her whole life because she had sons um, of other you know, sons with Joseph, her husband. And so when we think about this, she, she had at least James and Jude. But when they say this to him, I want you to couch it in this. In verse 5 of John chapter 7, notice what it says. For not even his brothers believed in him. So what they say to him, and this is kind of difficult, is, and commentators have, have used all kinds of different things. I think they're sort of, you know, kind of poking him. I think they're, they're, they're pushing him to do something, certainly. But, and I can't tell, uh, and, and commentators have, have wrestled with this, whether they're saying this sarcastically or whether they're saying, we want you to do this so that we can ride your coattails to greater prominence. Or if, you know, you know brothers just kind of bust on brothers. I don't know if you know that or not, right? How many of you have a brother? You know, I mean, that's just what brothers do, Right? I mean, brothers just kind of bust on other brothers. You know, they, they make fun of. Now, here's what the brothers said to him. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Essentially, they're saying, hey, Jesus, if, you know, if you're the great, like, turning water into wine guy, and you can walk on water, and you got all these magic trips, tricks, why don't you go up to the biggest festival in our, in our country's um, year, and why don't you make yourself known? Go ahead, Jesus. Go do it. And Jesus replies to them, and Jesus replies, um, my time has not yet come. Now, what he's saying there is that the, t- the time for him to be exalted has not yet come. The time for him to be crucified and to be the substitute, um, the atoning sacrifice for the world had not yet come. Now, they didn't understand that. And what Jesus is saying there is that, you know, he says, my time has not yet come, but he looks at his brothers and he says, but your time is always here. And, And what he's saying there is, and he elaborates on this. This is how we understand this. Because when he says, but your time is always here, in verse 7, he elaborates upon this idea, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Now, what he's saying there is he's saying, I am from heaven and you are from this world. And the reason that I am hated is because I am casting judgment upon the sinful actions, thoughts, and teachings of this world. But what he's saying in a not-so-subtle way is, but you guys are of the world. 
And the reason that the world doesn't hate you is because you're too connected to it. You love it too much. Now that right there causes me to pause and say, is that the case with my own soul? Like, am I so connected to this world um, that I love it too much? I mean, that, that's, it's self-indicting in some way, you know, when I l- read this, you know, because if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you should expect to have a bloody nose sometimes from the world. Like, you should expect to be ostracized. You should expect to be misunderstood. You should expect uh, to, be, um, to be not loved, um, to be really, I mean, people coming against you with their words and to be accused of things. And what Jesus is saying here in the midst of this is he's saying, my brothers, and again, these are guys. Now, now here's the other thing. Is that, just so you know, I don't think it would have been real easy to grow up with Jesus as your elder brother. Right? Joseph and Mary come home, there's a mess. They look around. Well, they know who it's not, right? <laughs> well, we know it's, it must be James or Jude because Jesus wouldn't have made this mess, right? I mean, here it is, right? Or Jesus is always going to obey. I mean, come on. You know, like, hey, Jesus, shouldn't we do this? No, I'm not doing that. That's, that's against the rules. We're not going to do that, right? I'm not saying that. So, so Jesus' brothers, they've been with him his entire life, and they do not believe in him. So he, here's what I'm saying. Um, one of the things that happens is some of you are brokenhearted that you have family members that do not believe. Some of you have deep relationships with people that you love and that you've been praying for for decades. Jesus understands that. Jesus understands what it is to live and to care for and to obey and to encourage and to have those people that you have loved the most not believe. That, that is comforting, I think, for us. Let me... Um, I think about this uh, in, in, in terms of, I have, I, have a, I have a brother. I just have one brother. Um, my little brother's name is Heath. And there, was, there were times um, when I was growing up, and, and I came to faith probably in college through the ministry of crew, so I'm very grateful for college ministry. And I remember uh, my life changed dramatically. What I loved changed. What I cared for changed. And I remember coming home, and I remember talking to my little brother about these things. And I remember even going to seminary, and, and I remember one instance where um, I, I challenged my brother, you know, because he's five years younger than me, and I challenged my brother uh, about some of the holiness in the midst of his own life, because he said, I, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And I challenged his way of thinking with regard to his treatment of young ladies. And, and he said, oh, I think God's okay with whatever I do. And I said, you think God is okay with you doing what you're doing to, with, with young women? And he goes, yeah, yeah, you're not the only one who prays. I prayed, and God said it was okay. And at the time, it's not my finest moment. It's not my finest moment, but remember, he's my brother. I was riding somewhere with my mom, and my mom was in the car, and I was in the back seat, and my brother was in the front seat, and I was probably, you know, 
Um, and I remember saying, hey, mom, pull the car over. She goes, why? And we were like on the interstate. I was like, pull the car over. I said, because I need to beat up my brother. You know, I was like, here's what we're going to do. I said, we're going to get outside and we're going to fight about this one. I was like, we're going to fight about this one. And, and so it was just, I, was, I couldn't believe that my brother said, you know what? I can do whatever I want because God says it's okay. I'm going to follow my heart. I'm going to follow my heart, and if my heart says it's okay, then certainly God thinks it's okay, because why would God allow me to feel this way, you know, unless he had given it to me? And I'm like, no, man, that's not the way it is. But in the midst of that, in the next five years, and through some tragedy in my own brother's life, I've seen my brother love Jesus. (laughs) And I've seen my brother say, you know, when I said that stuff when I was young, I was foolish. And I didn't know what I was talking about. And he's repented. And and through some difficulty and some tragedy that God used to draw him to himself. My little brother loves the Lord. He's a deacon in his his church in Virginia Beach. He, He leads the fellowship of Christian athletes in his school. You know, he actually leads about two or three different Bible studies throughout the week because he loves to tell other people about Jesus. And and so I say these things to say that Jesus knows what it's like to have family members in your family who don't believe. But you know who actually wrote two books of the New Testament? James and Jude. Two of Jesus' brothers did believe. What was it that caused them to believe? It was the resurrection. When Jesus was raised from the dead... His brothers saw him and believed in him. Now that is a testimony of faithfulness right there. And here's what I mean by that. Imagine, I mean, I got, I got a brother, right? Imagine, you know, for me, like, there is no way that I could ever believe that my brother Heath is the savior of the world, right? Like, he's never going to come to me and say, behold, <laughs> trust and believe, right? And be like, no, nah, man. <laughs> I, I did not, he would never do that either, right? But when Jesus is raised from the dead, even his unbelieving brothers believe. That is a te- and they go on to be pillars of the church and write books like James and Jude in the New Testament canon. Jesus knows. So here, here's my word of encouragement to you. If you have family members who have not believed, it's not over yet. Continue to pray. Continue to lift them up in prayer. Continue to tell them about Jesus. Continue to live a life of faithfulness and just pray and pray and pray because their story is not yet over. It's not over yet. You see, Jesus, you either love him or you hate him, but you can't ignore him. Now, he went up to the feast, you know, in verse 10, but after his brothers, let's go to the next set of people, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up not publicly, but in private. You know, uh, the Jews were looking for him at the feast. And notice what it says. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. So what you find there is people are trying to say, yeah, he's good and maybe we should follow him or he's bad and we need to get rid of him. He's like one of these other false messiahs. Again, you can't ignore who Jesus is. And yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Now, when I think about the idea 
of the fear of man versus the fear of God. Um, you know, think about this, this, this idea of, of fearing God versus fearing man. You know, Ed Welch writes uh, in this book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, he writes this. He goes, we fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. We fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. And we fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. These three reasons have one thing in common. They see people as bigger, that is more powerful and significant than God. And out of that fear, out of the fear that creates in us, we give other people the power and right to tell us what to feel, think, and do. That's what fearing man does. We give them authority in our life to tell us how to think, feel, and act because we're more worried about them than we are about fearing God. You see, Jesus did not die to increase our self-esteem. Rather, Jesus died to bring glory to the Father by redeeming people from the curse of sin. And when we think about, you know, fearing man versus, you know, uh, fearing God, when we fear God, when we fear him, when we reverence him and we want him to be made known, we will take the gospel to the ends of the world. And we'll start with our next door neighbors and our family members. We'll take the gospel to everyone. We will be risk takers when we fear God. We will risk our comfort. We will risk our reputation. And speaking of reputation, when we fear man, we fear or we're worried about what our reputation will, will happen. Like if, if, I, if I claim Jesus, but I fear man, what's going to happen to me? How will they view me? But when we fear God, we want to bring glory to God. When we... Um, we go from being, you know, even when I think about this with the children, and that's why I asked us to even consider this, when, when we fear God in the midst of our children's lives, we will pray that, that the Lord God would use our children to be cre- courageous missionaries all over the world. But when we fear man, we oftentimes will be saying things like, be careful. <laughs> you know, the difference between fearing God and fearing man is we go from being... Um, I guess, fearful, really, of what could happen to being courageous in terms of our prayer life for our children. That we would pray that God would actually use them and that God would, would build them and they would be strong and courageous. I mean, I, I love what um, even the passage that we read today in the Old Testament reading. You know, when we, when we read Deuteronomy 30, um, 31, it says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. There's not this idea of be fearful, but be strong and courageous. Now, as we think about this, um, um, I heard this uh, quote from J.D. Greer, and it says this, you can't make a difference unless you are different. (laughs) Think about that. You can't make a difference in the world that you're in unless you are different from the world. And we are called to bring the gospel message to a world that does not want to hear it. 
As a matter of fact, one of the things that, that we hear over and over again is that we are called to be um, culturally uh, tolerant. You know, have you heard that? Yeah, that we're, we're, and, and tolerance is essentially you do you, I'll do me, and we'll just agree to not get along. That's what tolerance is, right? You know what the New Testament's answer to tolerance is? Radical love. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be tolerant. I want you to be lovers of men and women, where we actually have enough courage to bring the truth of Jesus to bear in a world that is literally drowning in loneliness and depression, hopelessness, anger, and addiction. I don't want us to tolerate people drowning I want us to love so deeply that we will go to them with the words of life, that we will go to them with the words of Jesus and say, in Jesus, we find forgiveness, we find peace, we find life, and we find joy. Can I please tell you about Jesus? I don't want us to be tolerant. I want us to be radical lovers of those around us. And I think because I fear man, personally, I'm just, I'm just preaching a sermon to myself now, right? I should just go to a mirror. I withhold my testimony sometimes because I'm fearful of my reputation and what other people might think of me. It's a struggle. I think we struggle with that a lot. Um, you see, people respond differently to the name and person of Jesus. And how do you respond to Jesus? You know, the, the world in, in, in James actually says, um, let me, uh, where, where does it say? Oh, I'm sorry, in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, you know, John's writing, and he says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And I think about my own reputation. I think about my issues of comfort. I even re repented or at least confessed my issues of comfort. Like, I don't like camping. I don't like beds. I like heat. I like running water, all those kind of things, right? You know, but when we think about these things, you know, the, the world gives us three things. The lust of the eyes, which means I want what other people have. I covet what other people has. I want these things that I, I want them. I just long for the things of the world, whether it's wealth or, or um, it could be what somebody else has that I think is good, or it could be the lust of the flesh. That is the lust of a relationship with someone. This is lusting after a relationship that, that you shouldn't have. This is not talking about a marital union. This is talking about relationships that are going to satisfy you. They will not. Your things are not going to satisfy you. Relationships are not going to satisfy you. And then it also says, the, um, the, the third thing it says is the pride of life. This is sort of the idea of, of glory. You know, this is the pursuit of glory. I mean, this is really a summation of the book of Proverbs. You know, Solomon, when he's talking to his, his children, he says, remember the three G's, gold, glory, and girls. And he's talking to his son. He goes, those three G's are going to get you off of the road to heaven. They're going to distract you. They're going to um, divert your eyes and send you down a pathway. That's what the world has to offer us. But, but notice, like, let's, let's go back to the text, back, back to John chapter 7. So Jesus is there. 
Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. In verse 14, now in the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple. So Jesus shows up in the middle of the, the feast. Now this is like day three or four, okay? We'll get into the feast next week more. So come back next week. Um, and you'll hear more about the Feast of Booze as Jesus declares some statements. But he, he came there and the Jews marveled saying, how can this man, this man have this learning and he's never studied? And Jesus says, because what I have been taught comes from heaven, not from man. And so what he's saying there is, you know, all that I have is coming from heaven, not from worldly, secular wisdom. Now again, the idea there is that, you know, will we allow ourselves to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, or to the Word of God, or to the, the brilliance of men? Uh, St. Augustine, uh, one of the most brilliant minds ever, he established a rule that whenever he found that he disagreed with the Bible, he concluded that he was the one who was wrong. And he submitted to the teaching of God's Word. This is what it means to will to do God's will. That we are willing to believe and obey what the Bible teaches, even when, indeed, especially when it requires a revision of our thinking and our actions. That's what's going on right there. Jesus is saying, you guys don't get it. You guys don't get it. You guys don't even understand the Sabbath. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He goes, when I healed a man on a Sabbath, I was making him whole. And he references this in John chapter 7. He says, you circumcise a child on the eighth day when it's on the Sabbath to uphold the law of Moses because you don't want to break the law, but you, you're missing the point. The point of the Sabbath was that it was a gift from God to the Israelite people who had been in bondage for 400 years and were working to build bricks without straw. And the Sabbath was given so that man might rest and worship. And he goes, in the midst of that, we also do deeds of mercy. So these deeds of mercy, whether it's, you know, fixing, helping, making someone whole. This is what the Sabbath was meant for. And you think that you understand these things, but you don't. And they go, well, well, yeah, but we got it from Moses. And he goes, where do you think Moses got it from? From me. Everything I have is coming from heaven. And so I have a direct line with what is true. Now, this is really making people upset. This is making people upset for the crowd answered, you know, and then, you know, um, what you see in, in verse you know, 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? So again, Jesus is indicting them. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, so rather than actually address this, they just say, you have a demon. This is an ad hominem argument. Now we're just going to attack the person. You've got a demon. We don't even want to deal with the, the issues that you have. Again, you love him. You hate him. You can't ignore Jesus in the midst of this passage. Everybody has to respond to him. So some of these people go, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And then Jesus goes into this idea of healing on the Sabbath. And in verse 25, it says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? You know, so now they're, they're wondering. He's under suspicion. Isn't this? But he's speaking openly. Could this be the Christ? And yet we know that we don't know where the Christ is going to go, come from. Now that's funny because that's ignorance because the Old Testament prophets said that he would be born in Bethlehem. But they don't even understand the Old Testament, so they're making stuff up. 
Now, theologically, I'm here to tell you that I think people are making stuff up all the time. We all have a theological paradigm and people are making it up. And oftentimes we get it from social media. We get it from TV. You know, years ago, you know, um, oh, Father, where art thou? You know, it could be George Burns. It could be Steve Carell. It could be Morgan Freeman. And everybody has a view of who God is. And, it's, and I think that oftentimes our theology is, is um, built on the foundation of Hollywood and what the world is teaching us rather than from the Word of God. Because if they read the word of God, they would say, oh yeah, he's coming from Bethlehem. That makes sense. Now, so Jesus, um, again, many people misunderstood him. So Jesus proclaimed, you know me and you know where I come from. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many, in verse 31, this is the key verse here, yet many of the people believed in him. So you go from unbelief to belief, and you see that a lot in the Gospel of John. Matter of fact, you saw it at the very end of John chapter 6, when all, everybody left. And when Jesus says, aren't you disciples going to leave too? And Peter says, no, you have the words of eternal life, and we have seen and believe that you are the Messiah. Where can we go? You know, love them or hate them, you can't ignore them. Who is Jesus? It's probably the most important question that you'll ever be asked. Who is Jesus? Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that there have been men all over the world who want to disparage and undermine Christianity. You see, when, when someone's views become in conflict with who Jesus is or what he teaches, they will try to tear him down. You got to deal with who Jesus is. Let me um, conclude, and we'll talk about the Feast of Booths next week. Let me conclude with this story. Talking about people, either you love them or you hate them. Uh, during the French Revolution, the French Revolution uh, was really a, a revolution around secular humanism, and it deified atheistic reason to the point where during the French Revolution, they actually went into the Cathedral of Notre Dame and removed the altar from Notre Dame and replaced it with the Tree of Reason. Because the Tree of Reason is greater than who Jesus is. And one of the, the great French revolutionary thinkers was a man named Voltaire. And Voltaire wrote during the French Revolution, or just after, that in 50 years no one would remember Christianity. That's what he wrote. That's what Voltaire wrote. He says, in 20 years, he said, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. But 20 years passed, and Christianity remained, and Voltaire died. And history records his last words. His last words were this, I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell, and all of you who believe what I believe will go with me. O Christ, O Jesus Christ. Those were his last words. The man who stood up and said, in 20 years, I will single-handedly destroy Christianity. 50 years came after Voltaire's boast, after he had been gone for many years, for 30, and the house 
from which he had assaulted God's word was by then the headquarters of the Geneva Bible Society from which Christians were mass producing Bibles. The house Voltaire made his claim was a missionary house to produce Bibles for all in France. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus, you love him or you hate him, but you can't ignore him. What do you believe about Jesus and who he is? Would you pray for me? Or you pray for me. Yeah, you should. <laughs> you pray with me, though. Father, we are grateful. And Father, as we think about those who do not believe, our, our hearts oftentimes go to our family members. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would draw our family members to you. For children that are wayward, I pray, Lord, that you would draw them back as the story of the prodigal teaches. Father, I pray, Lord, for those who have never believed. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would do a work of the Spirit, that you would remove their heart of flesh, and you would replace it with a new heart. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would not fear man, but that we would fear you, and that we would not believe or be tempted to unbelief because of what we give others in terms of power over us. Lord Jesus, would you help us? Would you help us to love deeply? Would you help us to love so much that we bring the gospel to bear to those who have never heard? Father, help us. Save us. And Father, I pray that we would believe. Father, these things are written so that we might believe and that in believing we may have life in his name, Jesus' name. Father, we pray that you would cause our children to believe, those, who are, those little ones who are in the classrooms today. Father, would you cause them to believe? Please, Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.